2: and welcome to this week's episode of the Proper Class Podcast. I'm Laura Checkley. And I'm Hannah Chiswick. And we are, of course, here to celebrate all things working class because if we don't, no bloody bugger will. And then where will we be, eh? Answer, probably just sat in our front room. A bitching and a moaning, that's where. Oh, actually, on that, what do you say? No, seriously, do you say front room, living room, or do you say lounge? Well, oh, definitely. Oh, hang on a minute. It's like one of those things, isn't it? Now I'm thinking about it, I actually don't know. Uh Lounge,
0: maybe? Do you? No, I don't know. Sitting room? I don't know. (laughs)
2: Because apparently, right, according to Google and my mum, most working class people refer to it as front room. Front room, Um, yeah. It also did say, though, that if you own your own home, you're more (laughs) likely to call it a lounge, and uh, someone renting is more likely to call it
0: a living room. I've got an interesting one. So David, who I live with, do you know what my David calls it? No. The room. The and room. He calls it the room. So I've always taken the piss. Where's he p- from? Well, he's from Weymouth, but I've always taken the piss out of him, right? Saying why'd you call it the room? But him and his mum lived in a flat. It was just him and his mum. They lived in a flat, and he said, "Well, it was the only room we had that oh, wasn't the bedroom. bar, a bedroom, a bathroom, or the kitchen." So the it was room. the room. Oh
2: right, and that, that totally makes well, sense. We'll ask our guests in a the minute room. What, they, um, what they call it. Anyway, go on, over to you. Oh, I'm so sorry.
0: As always, we sit down with a working-class success story to celebrate their life and achievements
2: and discuss just how they got to where they are today. On that note, who are we celebrating this week, Law? You know what? Um, I really, really can't wait to get chatting to this week's guests. I've been following their journey for a while now, and let me tell you... This person is out there doing it for the working class, a critically acclaimed stand-up comedian whose material is all about being working class. They skillfully mix the personal and the political, but not only a stand-out stand-up, see what I did there, eh? He is also a writer, actor, presenter and podcaster. I mean, I am
0: about to give it away here, but his (laughs) hit sell-out Edinburgh show, I, Tom Mayhew, there's the clue. Who? Clue? The clue. (laughs) The clue, (laughs) which was all about living on benefits in Austerity Britain, received five stars across the board and subsequently got a London transfer where he enjoyed a sellout run at the Soho Theatre, again with rave reviews. Since then, he's
2: gone on to adapt the show to series for Radio 4 called Tom Mayhew is Benefit Scum. He has performed on Radio 1, BBC Radio 4 Extra, and is a regular writer for shows such as the BBC News Quiz and Newsjack. He even did the impossible by
0: winning the comedy store's legendary gong show. Hang on a minute. Didn't you do that
2: with, with you and Vix when yeah, you we had your did. double act, yeah, How last- does that go for you? <laughs> we lasted 30 seconds before nice. someone shouted out, uh, Show us your tits. And then we replied <laughs> back with, Which one? And then we got gonged off. Which tit? Which, which tit? One no, no, which person? person? <laughs>
0: Not only that, but he also won Brian Gittin's Notorious Honk Show, was nominated for Comedian of the Year at the Leicester Comedy Festival and reached the semi-finals of the BBC New
2: Comedy Awards in 2018. Not only hilarious and multi-talented, but more importantly, he is a true voice for the working class whose journey I'm truly inspired by. And believe me when I say this, this guy right here... Is only just getting started, and to quote his agent's website, he is fighting for a better world for people like us, one joke at a time. Listeners, give a sizzling hot, proper class podcast welcome to the brilliant Tom Mayhew. Woo! Hey, was that really painful?
1: I, I bloody hated that. Like, why do you do this? This is this is like torture. But you get working class people who are like not used to being given compliments, and you go, let's basically make it like a horrible, complimentary Guantanamo Bay. It
0: really is bad, isn't it? It's like, if you, I honestly feel like if you bumped into a working class mate who just won an Oscar and said what you'd been up to, they'd go,
2: not much, you. (laughs) 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 It's like this sort of... That's why we wanted to do this show, because I'm exactly the same. I can't bear it. And people go, oh, you're so pretty. You oh, no, 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 little old me, what are you talking about? But I think that's why we wanted to do this, you know, a celebration. And we can't celebrate your success in your rise if we don't mention all that amazing work. We just have to get better at going, yeah, do you know what? I'm fucking good and I've worked really hard for this. Not too oh, good at it, though.
1: No. I don't, I don't, I really hate it. I, I don't know. I think it is It is that kind of thing coming from our background where you you don't like to... Big yourself up too much. And I think also you're worried about bigging yourself up and then looking like a cocky little shit. Yeah. But then it's weird because if you don't big yourself up, who the fuck will in this industry? Um,
2: No one, babe,
1: yeah. Apart from this podcast, here we go, there we go.
2: Right, so Tom, we start each week asking our guests to take us back to a place and time that has some meaning to them, somewhere that has a connection to their working class roots. So if you could take us back today, where would you take us?
1: I would take us back to somewhere where I I definitely wouldn't swear. Uh, That was my grandparents' house, because uh, they were very, uh, very sort of uh, Christian. Well, my grandpa still is, my grandma isn't with us, sadly. But they were very kind of... Uh, respectful, kind, nice people, and they wouldn't let us swear, especially when we were children. I mean, still now, I think my grandpa would probably chuck me out if I swore at his house. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I just remember going there growing up a lot, and it was always such a warm, loving, kind of very... um, You know, like, your happy place as a kid? It really was that. You sort of would go there, and grandma would make a really lovely meal, and we'd just sit there, the grandparents, and it would... I I was really kind of lucky, because, like... My grandparents on my dad's side, we weren't as close to. But then my grandparents on my mum's side, it felt like we, you know, like a additional mum and dad. Really, you, mm-hmm. you really had a really sort of close, loving bond. And uh it was also nice to see them. And they kind of, their kind of where they live kind of encapsulated a lot of working class families because, like, they had my my grandma and grandpa on one part of the road, and then on the same road. Uh, my grandma's sister lived there Hmm. and one of my grandma's brothers also lived there and then there was like I think at least one more sister and one more brother who lived in the same town like real kind of close-knit community who all just lived there forever together because they wanted to be close to their family and I think a lot of uh, a lot of you know people do that if they uh not not that people don't love their family if they move away do you know what I mean but I think um (laughs) Often, when people grow up with not much, it brings them together and mm. that bond. You want to always be there, even when you're uh, old and grey.
2: Yeah, and what what was it? What is it? Obviously, it's a safe place for you. Where where was it? Was it a flat? Was it a house? Tell us a bit about, if if you don't mind.
1: Um, I'll give you the dear postcode. The- yeah, we'll around. yeah, we'll come round. Yeah,
2: we'll come round. It sounds nice.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, my, my grandpa just over the hell. All these people, all the podcasters, just be like, "You're right, Ronnie." It's <laughs> like, "Who are you? Leave me alone." <laughs> Um, yeah, it was just a little house and I always I always remember being very really excited by it growing up because they had, uh, as you walked sort of towards the door, they had little squares on the floor that were like pink and yellow, like a little, like a Battenberg walk. It was amazing. amazing. Like, amazing. As a kid, you're like, oh my God, it's like the Battenberg brick road. It was so exciting. And they just, uh, yeah, they'd have a lovely, lovely little house and it had a, a nice garden that Grandpa always really looked after. He loved his gardening. Do you know what I mean? He still does. He just can't do as much of it because he's 91. But he really looked after his garden. So it felt like you'd go there and you'd see people you loved and then they had this kind of amazing brick walk you'd walk over and then they'd have this wonderful garden. You're like, God, this is like a garden off the telly. Like really kind of oh wow, beautiful. Like I just thought it felt like a real... Uh, just such a nice place I and mean, just all of it like you know, I mean it might have still felt like that if they had a shitty garden, I don't know. But yeah. just when you felt like they put so much care into that garden, that sort of reflects the care they put into everything, into their family, into their, their house and it was just yeah. yeah, really, really nice.
2: And did they have a front room, living room or lounge, Tom?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean they had a they had a living room.
2: See do you say living room?
1: No, a front room.
2: Would you yeah. say front room? Yeah, I say, say front room as well. well.
1: Well I, well, I we rented our house; they and theirs. So that's the difference, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know, but what well, we say, yeah, we say. Uh...
2: I never say lounge.
1: No, I never is that say about? lounge. No. Lounge, like, mate, are you going for a flight or something? But like yeah,
2: that's that's that's. Virgin Air lounge,
1: or whatever it is. I know. have been
2: known to say living room. I say living room. I sort of jostle, jostle between I the two say front
0: sitting room, room, living room. I've I've never used the word sitting room. I don't know why.
2: No, sitting room sitting. Well, because I think sitting room is is was like a drawing room, wasn't it? And and I do kind obviously of a say kind of
0: drawing room <laughs> <laughs> in my drawing room, obviously. And so, uh, tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about uh, growing up. Like, what what was it like growing up? Where, what sort of area did you live in?
1: Um, well, it's I kind of uh, I kind of both hate and think it's important to talk about where I, I grew up because I grew up in uh, the, the southeast and I grew up in Hertfordshire, which I know is like a fucking posh hellhole full of Tories everywhere. And, like i I've walked past a lot of them walking to school. I'm fully aware of that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But I think people do have sort of stereotypes about where people live. Because I can remember. Yeah,
2: for sure.
1: I I had it a few years ago where someone said, can you really be working class if you live in Hertfordshire? And I was like, well, mate, I was on benefits. I don't think you can really be like, God, look at this. Poshboy on benefits. It's that really so awesome.
2: nonsensical, isn't it? It's like, what? I know. And, and obviously,
0: in a lot of those areas where obviously there is a lot of wealth as well, like the divide between the people who have and have nots is even more pronounced
2: yeah, yeah. than in
0: communities yeah. that are predominantly that. Did you, yeah. find, did you find that?
1: Yeah, well, totally. Like I, you know, I, I had, um, you know, my mum worked at Boots, my brother worked at Tesco, so my dad worked in a warehouse. But then uh, if we went to get the train, we had to drive past all these really nice houses that were, you know, basically owned by people who wanted it as a more affordable version of London because they can get a commuter place in in Hertfordshire, commute to London, and they'd go, oh, it's only one and a half million pounds for this house. And we were living in our little council house we rented and we were just like, fuck, do you know what I mean? Because I I know there is like the stereotypes and there is the, you know, the north-south divide and all that shit. And often people can be like, just because you've got, an accent that isn't from the north, they might think you're you're posher or whatever. But like my grandpa came from Middlesbrough and he just he moved. <laughs> people can not move from north yeah, yeah. to south yeah. and vice yeah. versa, yeah. right? What? Yes. I, I, I just find it so weird when people are like, like, can you really be working class if you're down south? It's like, well, my, my grandpa didn't suddenly get really posh. He still spills gravy over himself every Sunday when he eats dinner. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and
2: did you find um living and growing up there, did you find that you became quickly aware of class and what your class was?
1: Yeah, since I was about six. Wow, that's really
2: young. young, that's young.
1: Literally, as, as a kid, like, um, I've got a bit in uh, my stand-up I'm trying to write at the moment about how when we were about 12 or 13 we could have gone to a a school trip to france and uh we got the letter and it said how much it was going to be and i just read how much it was and said to my parents like oh i don't want to go to france i don't i don't want to travel abroad and it wasn't that at all i would love to but i just knew it was more than we could afford but you're you're when you grow up sort of in uh you know either working class environment or poverty or whatever it is you're fundamentally far more aware of money and financial hardships than than some middle-class people ever are even, ever are. Look, I was going to say, some people middle-class people aren't until they're adults. So I know some middle-class people who are now like 50 and they still don't have that awareness. So, yeah, I think there's so... It's really
0: difficult. I think we talk about this a lot. I think money, if we had to... Our guests have been so diverse in terms of like their life experiences and, and the career paths they've taken, but the... Th- Thing that is fundamentally ties them all together is money as yeah. a as a topic as an issue as a barrier you know without a doubt and I think one of the things I feel like I repeat myself but it, it feels like so relevant all the time that you can't know what it is to not have money if you've always had it you know it's an impossible you can have you can be the world's most empathetic person and you know we've always been clear this isn't a middle-class bashing we have loads of middle-class mates who are empathetic maybe it should
1: be maybe it should be middle-class bashing yes come
0: on let's start (laughs) now
1: exactly i mean we don't get enough of that frankly
0: no true very true no you, 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 you're right (laughs) <laughs> you definitely can't though can you we were no. talking about like uh laura's asking me my beef of the week but uh, it's a while back now but when they took the 20 quid off everyone that they've oh, yeah. you know there was a fantastic i've mentioned it before but there was a fantastic uh thing on twitter about it's not that they that they think it's too much money to be spending it's that they cannot understand the importance of 20 quid to people to them it's a glass mm. of chateauneuf de pap or whatever they're after yeah yeah it's not a
2: week's worth of School lunches from Aldi. We always you know, say, yeah. don't we? Like, because you know, we have got i I've got a lot of posh mates and middle class mates, and like that, you know. And you go, oh, so and so says they ain't got any money. And It's like, oh, is it? As in, like, what though? Like, our version of not having any money is I can't get to work. I can't get on the fucking bus. That's how much mm-hmm. money I do. I don't have any money. Whereas some people be like, oh, I've only got ten grand saving, or oh, I've had to dip into my savings. But if you've, I hate you, that. So I've had to <laughs> dip into my savings. <laughs> well, I fucking oh. love <laughs> savings? Um, but yeah, but you're right. If it's like, I think Debris said it. Our guest uh, in last series said, like, if you've never broken your leg, you'll never know what that pain is like. And that's exactly the same with, with money, isn't it? If you've never been without – like, that's why I keep working. That's why I constantly work because I'm so worried the money will run out because I, I've i made a pact myself that mm. I'll never not have money again because, you know, me and my mum got rehoused when I was uh, in my teens and I'll never, ever forget that. And you know you were saying about, oh, it's all right, mum, I don't want to go on that trip – we forget what a strain it is for the kids. I watched the documentary, you know, The Living Crisis, the uh, a documentary it was on, I think it was last week, and the, the kid was pretending she wasn't hungry because her mum hadn't eaten for two days because she was skipping meals. And it just really, I, I it broke my fucking heart. But when you've been there as a kid and you go, I'm not going to be in that position again and that that... Like, that's, it's like, an, unless you've been there, you're never, ever going to understand it. And that's why, I mean, I mean that's why we're totally fucked with the Tories. They can't understand this. They can't understand that they've whacked up all the prices, but they haven't whacked up all our fucking wages at the same time, that people cannot and will not be able to afford their heating bills, their lighting, everything, electricity. So let's talk about your childhood Let's talk about school. How how was school for you?
1: Um, I quite liked school actually. I, yeah. I kind of I was very sort of quiet, I just kept myself out of the way. I quite liked. I think I was very focused on going like, right. I want to get good grades. I want to work hard so I can do well at school. Put myself into position to get. I'm going to literally just saying it now, but it's mad how much it was all so. Because I think that. There's a point in your life where you try and kid yourself that like, oh no, my, my upbringing didn't actually, it didn't shake me too much. I'm just like everyone else, do you know what I mean? But then you realise like literally since I was about eight, I was like, right, I've got to get good grades to get a good job to get us out of this shit.
2: Yeah. And, and,
1: and that was it, do you know what I mean? I was always like, since I was a kid, I was like, I didn't care about going to parties, didn't care about being cool, I didn't care about dating people, like I didn't have my first... Uh, partner until I was about 20. I didn't give a shit about doing it as a teenager because I was like, no, I need to get good grades need to work hard to get a good job to look after my parents. And that was it. I didn't give a shit about my life. And and even still now, I don't really care about my life. I'm just trying to get better and better at comedy and rise the ladder so I can buy my parents their council house. That's the only Mm. thing I kind of want to do. I don't, really care about me. I, I want to look after my parents and I want to look after my nephews and then maybe I'll treat myself to, you know, a new jacket for 20 quid.
2: So so school was all right. Were you academic? Did you feel, did you feel like your drive to get out and do better hmm. was the reason you became academic or do you think you were naturally quite academic or did you kind of force that with your drive of getting uh, the fuck out of
1: <laughs> I, I think I was quite smart naturally, like just... I think I was very aware of the fact that my parents' upbringing, especially my dad, like he had a really kind of a much rougher upbringing than I did. Uh, like he, yeah, you know, would have had his first job when he was about ten or eleven or something, and mm-hmm. he would have been like, you know, helping his alcoholic dad back from the pub, dragging him home and stuff like that, and sort of going out to earn money to help his dad pay the bills because his dad wasn't in a good way. And he came from a really big family and they didn't have much money at all. And I always sort of looked at my dad and I was like, yeah, but you're really smart. Like my dad's smart enough. He could have gone to uni if he'd come from a different background, but he didn't. He came from a background where he had to basically drop out of school to help his siblings eat. Like, do you know what I mean? And I always thought, I looked at that and I was like, right, well, I want to try and work hard and try and get the uh, success that." You rightfully should have. You, you yeah. know, you're you smart yeah. enough to be in a really good job, but it's just that you live in a society where you had so many problems literally from childhood that yeah. literally straight away you, you didn't have that space to sit and work hard. You, you no. couldn't focus on school because you were going, I'm going to skive off school to get money now because we need money now. I can't, you know, he couldn't think, what can I do to earn money in eight years? He had to go, no, we need food this, we need food yeah, exactly. tonight. It's, it's, it's hand to
2: mouth, isn't it? It's hand to mouth, yeah. yeah. He's
1: like, I need to get money for food tonight, so I need to fuck school, do you know what I mean? And literally, that's what that was his background, and it made me go like, well, I'm really lucky to not be in that situation, so yeah. I always... Felt like I want to try and work hard and make
0: something for myself. It's so many, I mean, I know we're jumping about a bit, but you sort of obviously had great success at the Edinburgh Festival later on mm. in your journey. And that always strikes me as a place where money is, is very evident as well, because obviously I imagine you didn't have a year of not working to sit around and write your Edinburgh show. Mm. No. Presumably you didn't have the finances to go, you know what, I'll do and I'll self fund myself and I'll take mm. three marketeers with me and <laughs> yeah, a flyer in the yeah. team. Yeah. And yeah. A <laughs> your
1: company. Now, we well, well, literally like everyone in these things talk about uh oh your Edinburgh show in 2019, but that Edinburgh show was basically born from doing a show in 2017, which I did while I worked part-time at Sainsbury's. And uh, I was working part-time at Sainsbury's earning about I think 9 grand a year and then I spent like at least 5 grand on that Edinburgh show. So oh, I was putting so much of my money away and put it all into the Edinburgh show. And then the Edinburgh show lost about two grand. Right. And you literally finished the Edinburgh show on like the 30th of August, back at work at Sainsbury's on the 1st of September. I had a bit of a mental breakdown, literally had to get signed up for my doctor because I felt like I'd just pissed all my money away, pissed my life away. It wasn't me it's sold to you as this big gamble that's going to change your life, like the whole fucking X Factor thing.
2: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Even if, like, I mean, Edinburgh's only good to you if you, you know, get nominated and uh, mm-hmm. get noticed, because uh, for a lot of us that doesn't happen. And actually what people don't talk about is the fallout. After Edinburgh, I spent oh, so God. many years recovering from three Edinburghs. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we uh, luckily I had a double act partner, so we could split the cost a bit. But mm-hmm. the fallout from it meant that it didn't matter how well I was sort of climbing a bit with acting, all that money was just getting swallowed again with debt, credit cards. And I mean, it's mad what people do to get there because you are sold the dream. You are. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, l- lucky for you, it has kind of worked out isn't it but it's it's like you know maybe you could have got there a bit quicker had you not had to work in Sainsbury's and, and slog your guts out and throw more money at it you know
1: yeah well I, I definitely think like you know it's, uh, it's a thing where a lot of us could have got there quicker if we'd come from nicer backgrounds like I yeah. think it's so like it's so rare you see uh, I can't name a single working class comedian who's got on telly before the age of 30 such a good point like, literally, God, yeah. there's, 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 there's either Graham, who went to Cambridge, you've got on there when he's 21 or whatever, or Jack Whitehall, who yep. came from a privileged background, got on there. But those people, all the people I think of who are sort of, you know, they they seem to always come from nicer backgrounds. I very rarely, when I think of working-class comedians, I think of, oh, Mickey Flanagan, the guy in his 30s, talking about his family, or John Bishop, or yeah. those kind of people. And it feels like maybe 20 years ago it might have been different when, mm. you know, But definitely nowadays, definitely, you know, the past 20 years or so, I'd say, it's been a lot harder for people to break through because there's so many more comedians. But then that also means there's so many more comedians from privileged positions. So Mm -hmm, the the likelihood of the poorer comedians standing out is is much lower because you've gone from competing with five other comedians, so you could easily stand out, to a thousand other comedians and 200 of them spend more on Edinburgh than you earn in a year.
2: What was comedy born out of? Were you always funny? Were you always drawn to comedy? Or was it out of, I'm going to make a show out of this because I'm so sick of talking about being on
1: benefits? No, it was, it was, I, I was just always, it was what I was good at at school. Like I was, like I was good at, you know, English and maths and stuff, but I just enjoyed making people laugh. I always felt like I was very good at it. And like, I, I liked watching lots of comedy as a teenager. I liked watching... You know, stand up and like live at the Apollo and Mark of the Week and Nevermind the Buzzcocks and all these kind of shows that are on. I'd watch all of them and I really, really loved them. And I'd go to see stand up live, like I want to see, I think, John Richardson for my 18th birthday and stuff like that. And it was just what I really enjoyed consuming. And I always thought that's really cool. And I, I liked the fact it was, uh, it seemed interesting, it seemed fun, and it felt like something that could. You know, you could reap the rewards and look after people you love if you do really well. Which...
2: And, and, and at first it feels quite accessible, doesn't it? Because like, well, there's nothing to stop me getting up there and just get yes. grabbing a mic and doing yeah. it. Like, that's not going to cost me anything. Mm. But we talk about, don't we, all the time about humour in being prevalent in the working class. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah, I think it is very prevalent. It's very much uh, when you've not got much, it's it's your tool to deal with shit do you know mm, what i mean yeah. Like it's how you it's how you deal with stuff you can't afford to go let's go on a really extravagant holiday to florida or something or you can't go let's go for a nice meal out or you just go let's put some comedy on on the telly or something yeah. or you know you just have a nice chat and you you make a joke or you you drop a joke in there or something like i can remember um literally when my my grandma passed away in 2020 and uh Grandpa came to us for Christmas Day and we were a bit worried about him because we were like, oh, the first Christmas about his wife of 65 years, it's going to be a tough day for us, a tough day for him. And he, he turned up dressed up as an elf.
2: Oh, God bless him. <laughs>
1: Literally, just like a man, like, he must have been like 89, Just up as an elf. We were like, what the fuck are you? It was just like, That's I'm so an elf, I not It's Christmas. Like... So...
2: Your mum
0: and dad dress up every Christmas, don't they? Only since my son was born. Oh, and it's a right. very unlikely thing for my mum to do. But, oh, yeah. she's, it was her idea. Yeah. Really? They've taken to it, but they've now committed themselves. Yeah, so they've they're getting, getting butt, out of yeah. it now every year. Yeah.
2: It's like, it is funny. I always look forward to those photos.
1: What, what if they dressed up as?
2: Well, this year, bizarrely,
0: they decided to dress up. Well, for the first year that my son was born, they just dressed up as sort of cute animals. Do you know what so, I mean? They got onesies and he was like nine months old. He thought it was brilliant. Hilarious. Oh, but but I'm then, good.
1: I, I was worried you were going to go, when my son was born, I dressed up as Fred West or something. You could like, so right? No,
0: I dressed up. That's all right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, just checking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, fine, came, yeah. I came round as Rose. and yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: I, want, I want to see that family photo that. would be bloody hilarious. But
0: this year they decided to all dress up as my dad. Decided, <laughs> oh, that's, that's really weird. It was sort of. they got all oh, your cats. sister does it. As well, doesn't she? Yeah, she yeah. So they've got well. bald caps and glasses, and we're all dressed as. But my son, like, obviously, he's, he's six, and they're terrible critics. Six-year-olds. He just went, "Well, what is this meant to be? <laughs> like, <laughs> this, this big effort of getting all their oh, like, yeah, really no. gone to town and tried he was really a bit like, oh, right okay, yeah, no, it wasn't a winner this year.'
1: <laughs> oh, I think that's great. He'll he'll appreciate that looking back, though. That's, oh, of course that's...
0: he will. It's an amazing thing, bless him.
1: That's yeah. a slow a slow burner. In ten years, he'll he'll be doing stand up about it or something. Do you know what I mean?
2: I always think about Christmases a lot sort of growing up because when you don't have a, a lot, it's remarkable looking back what your parents did to make it feel like it was a lot. Um, like my stepdad, he used to get like an orange and a sock. That was his Christmas. Wow. Yeah. Like, I mean, that he was the youngest of 15 kids um, growing up in Liverpool. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot, right? Um, <laughs> but my mum always is that poor woman. It's abuse. <laughs> I mean, 15 is quite a thing. Yeah, and Christmas is a are interesting aren't they because especially now i can't imagine what it's like growing up like being isaac's age hannah's kid six and and going into school and it's so materialistic now what did you get and it's all electronics and i mean i was happy with like a bloody i mean thrilled with like a fucking cabbage patch doll
1: is, is, is there anything else like that where you you didn't get it as a kid but then like as an adult you're like i can finally afford
2: yes
0: I know what you—you you always wanted a soda stream, didn't you, as a kid? Do you know what? So I really wanted two things. I wanted a soda stream. I thought that was well posh, because my friend Harriet had a soda stream, and they had someone who came round, right? Do you even know what a soda stream is, Tom? Because you're so young. Like, no, I, I may
1: have heard it mentioned. It's like it. a funny
0: thing. It makes like, fizzy drinks. It basically, basically, makes fizzy drinks. It like sat on the counter, and you'd put a bottle in. It's a very and it sort of late eighties, early nineties yeah, thing, was it? You'd put the bottle in, and it would mm. put fizz into the drink. But then, like a dude came round and delivered the the syrup right? and she used to have this guy come around to deliver it I wanted a soda stream but the other thing I really wanted and I actually got it for my 40th David bought it me for my 40th was a Mr Frosty oh <sighs> wow yeah. Like I puppy, I like, want yeah I wanted my mum was like no way no way no waste of money I mean they were expensive as well and I never got one I really wanted one I got one for my 40th listener they are shite <laughs> I tried I tried to I tried to make a like slash puppy. puppy yeah yeah no, no good, no. But I finally got it, and I was delighted. It was an amazing 40th present. I really, really... Oh, I'm really wanted happy it. for you. I'm very happy that you got that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Shaming it. That's what I really wanted. What about you? Well, I,
1: I'm sorry. I just want to say about the Mr. Frosty. Was it shite because it was probably about 40 years old? Was it, like, really rusty and horrific and...
0: I mean, there is a bit of that. I mean, and also I am just terrible. I was like, "How does this work?" And I probably broke it on the first use or something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was so excited, and I was trying to like, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. yeah, I just ballsed it up. I was trying to probably put gin through it or something. You know? Oh, that
2: would be oh, good. Oh, lovely. Mate. We'll
0: go straight for a gin slushie. You know, oh. broke it. But um, was there something you wanted? What was your like when you saw things? You think, "Oh, that now that," because I thought a Soda Stream mm. was like that was posh. Was the things that you thought now that is posh? I remember
1: thinking people who had a Furby were posh we couldn't afford them and they were like oh, 30 God. quid for just like a little talking bird thing that, like they
2: were that much no way they, 30 no, quid they were, they were, they were expensive up. a furby yeah still are they still expensive i don't know that's I'm, ridiculous
1: i mean i imagine there's now over no there's probably like a big tip full of them now like literally thousands yeah, right? of furbies just piled up set on fire somewhere crying yeah well they were huge weren't they and then I mean, if eventually people went, what, what the fuck is this? Why have we got this? Uh, what did they do? They sort of spoke to you, and they would go to sleep. I think at one point, or
0: it wasn't like a Tamagotchi. You weren't supposed to keep it alive, were you? It wasn't that. So- I,
1: I think it was. It was supposed to be a bit like that, like a cross between a tamagotchi, like a, a pet you could interact with, but also like a cuddly toy.
2: Okay. Because
1: my cousin had one, but because. They were kind of, they had a big battery pack in them. They weren't cuddly enough to actually hug. Yeah, it, was, yeah, they were. it was just like a really square robot bird. Really yeah. fucking weird. I know. I'm kind of glad I've, I've not got one and I don't want one. I, just I always, to be clear, do yeah. not
0: send Tom a Furby. He does not please, want one. Please don't.
2: So Tom, we've got obviously got to talk about your uh, Tom May here's Benefit Scum show because obviously it's been such a success for you. And um it's done a series on Radio 4, is that right? And you're yeah. you're gonna do another series, is that right?
1: Yes, we're recording series two in a couple of weeks.
2: That's amazing, congratulations. So what's Thank the you. what was the turning point for you? Obviously, you'd gone and done that Edinburgh, what was it, 2018, come back, gone straight back to work. What changed for you
1: after that? Uh well it was really it was really that at Edinburgh where I lost a lot of money and I was just so aware of comedians around me who had more money and were you know I kind of felt putting themselves in a better position purely because they could afford to spend more and I felt like I'm I was risking like 80% of my yearly income and it still felt like not enough do you know what I mean so it kind of made me go like well fuck this I'm gonna come back and talk about something more from this perspective and then you bring a show like that to Edinburgh Fringe and it's like, you know, you're one of, you know, 400 comedians doing shows. There's probably two of us talking about being on benefits at all. Right. So when you do a whole show that's focused on that, it luckily it kind of stood out and, and did really well because people are like, oh shit, I've never heard this before because most people from that background couldn't afford to get there. Like, I can only afford to get to Edinburgh that year because uh, my partner at the time you know, paid for our accommodation up front without me paying for it. And then I paid her back off the profit I made in Edinburgh. But if she hadn't paid for the accommodation, I wouldn't have been able to afford to have got to Edinburgh and made that profit. And that's why that kind of, for me, sums up why it's so mad really, because it's like, you know, I can't afford to pay a grand to go to Edinburgh for the accommodation up front. But if someone pays that for me, I'll come out with two and a half grand profit and pay you off. Do you know what I mean? But, If you can't afford to do that in the first place, you can't get the profit. And that is why it's so, so mad because you're, you're locked out of that opportunity of making that profit, regardless of whether you know you could make it. So, nothing to do with
0: ability or work ethic. And we're fed that lie a lot of the time in that idea that, like, if only you worked harder and, you know, Mm. if if only you, it's a lack of, it's a lack of ambition or a lack of, you know, laziness, laziness and, and money just makes money that's just a mm. fact isn't it you know we you've all seen that so it's such a i've seen it in my mates who like you know have success like you have law like suddenly you're getting more stuff for free than you've ever had like me and you'd be Are trying to get together a ten of yeah like, and, like it's,
2: just, it's mad yeah the, the sort of i don't know more well known you get than people want you to give their product to you for free and then you just pop it on instagram you know like, oh look at all this shit i'm getting for free i have a mate i majorly feel guilty about earning the money that I earn now I have major guilt I don't know if you, you're experiencing that um, and I, I've talked to guests about it in the past about feeling guilty about being comfortable now I don't know I, 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 of course I've strived to be comfortable my whole life but I speak to Hannah about it all the time how I want to help everyone out I want to pay mm-hmm. off everyone's fucking debts <laughs> I want to mm-hmm. just get everyone you know family and friends and, and... don't start with me you'll be fucked <laughs> <laughs> go somewhere we else
0: to you like
2: love bankrupt by tea time <laughs> but yeah I don't know if you're if you experience that or you you feel that at all like just being in a slightly more comfortable position now how, how are you dealing with that
1: yeah I kind of um, like it's it's, it's the tricky thing with, with being in the arts is that uh, you can be slightly more comfortable like it's the first time in my life I've had a little bit of savings and I'm always very uh, You know, I always say a little bit because it is like a, a little bit. You know what I mean? If I didn't get any paid work for three months, I'd be fucked. But yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. always that thing where it's it's nice to have that, but also it's so perilous the, mm. these industries, like literally. And, and I think that's why it can be hard for a lot of people from our background because we're used to like knowing that right. My dad would work forty-hour weeks, so he'd get paid just much an hour that's what he'd get. Whereas when you work in these industries, like one week you do a 20-minute comedy set, you get paid 30 quid. The next week you do a 10-minute set, you get paid 100. And in your head you're like, I can't, I I, I did less work. Part of the 20 minutes had that 10 minutes in. You can't, and, and you have so little control yeah. over what what those opportunities and or it can those all go away are.
2: tomorrow and it can all go yeah, away totally, tomorrow as yeah. well equally so there's always that worry isn't there there's a double
0: thing there I don't know if I can articulate this it's something I've thought about a lot in my... so I'm a theatre director which is like you know second to stand-up comedy probably the notoriously worst paced job in history and, and also <clears> absolutely <throat> just littered with middle class if I'm honest men still there's very few women and there's certainly very few working class women and I've always said that money is a big Barrier and that's absolutely true. Like I can't afford to not work. I can't go, I'll just do three shows this year and decide which ones and spend like a long time, you know. I just can't do that. I don't have that luxury. Still, even now I don't have that luxury. But there's another part of it as well, which is that I'm a good director, I think I'm good at what I do, and and I have had a level of success, but I, I struggle completely investing in it and loving it to the same degree as some of my contemporaries because I can never Fully rely on it. I can't explain that very well. Up
2: the next thing
0: because I can never go like I'm just going to sit in this and really enjoy it and really go yes, that's what I do. I'm so passionate about theatre. I am. I've never done anything else, so it's a weird thing. I've only ever been a theatre director. Very privileged in that regard. But I can never fully just go, yes, I'm
2: going to. But for the I amount of it's time. A thing. I mean, I've worked with Hannah, she's an incredible director. But the amount of time that you have been directing, and I, I would say you are a success story because you earn a living out of what you do, which not many of us, what you love doing, sorry, what, not many of us in life can say that. But it is remarkable, and, you know, I watch I'm Your Best Friend, and I know you won't mind me saying this, how much you struggle financially to keep up the whole time. You're constantly chasing your tail,
0: aren't
2: you? Yeah, constantly, because there's so little money in theatre and
0: there's so much expected of you in terms of free work, free labour, really. Um, So much, you know, like I get paid perhaps for a four-week rehearsal period, but the real workload of that show is six months. Yeah. And to make anything work, I have to be doing five of those at a time. Right, financially, and that's just a, a huge ask. So I sometimes feel like I don't have the luxury to enjoy it, perhaps as much as I could, if I wasn't so reliant on having to survive financially. Yeah. Then it's an emotional part of that as well.
1: well. Yeah. Well, it's it's. I think that's that's the crux of it is that you can't enjoy it fully when part of the reason you do it is because it's your job, because you've got to pay the bills. earn money. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. like everyone, everyone loves doing our creative jobs, you know, we wouldn't make it our career, we didn't love it. But there's a difference between doing three really nice gigs that you love that are fun because you just want to do them and finding yourself having to do uh, 10 gigs in a week because you've got to pay the bills. And some of them are ones where, you know, you're you're travelling really far for, you know, you're spending three hours travelling to do a five-minute gig or whatever. Some of them are, like, really tough you know things where you have to spend hours researching and editing and writing stuff. Exactly. Like, you know, you know, it's it's that thing where you you, you love you love the art, but sometimes the uh, I I always feel like I, I love the art, but sometimes the the industry. Can be a fucking nightmare. I couldn't agree
0: more. Yeah. Obviously, you had that level of success, and you get the Radio Four gig, which is an amazing gig. But Radio Four is not obviously renowned for being the most working-class kind of environment. Yeah. Did you? How did you feel in that environment? Did you get any of the what we talk about a lot? Did you feel any sort of imposter syndrome? Did you feel what was that like going into that to that world?
1: Yeah, ma- massively. Because like the uh, before I'd done my own show, I had. Uh, when I'd written on the news quiz, I remember being invited to write on it and they just sort of said, uh, oh, you know, just bring your laptop along. And I was like, I don't have a laptop. That They just would presume you've got a laptop because everyone who writes on it had a laptop because most of them are middle class people who live in London who are doing perfectly fine. And I was like, I had to I had to borrow my laptop <laughs> again. Oh, I had God. to borrow my partner's laptop and take that into London. And I remember being fucking terrified because I'd never... Had a laptop, and it was the first time I was holding something in my bag that was worth 500 quid. Right, no. It wasn't mine, and I wasn't even thinking about writing on the show. I was just thinking about, right, don't let this bag out of your sight. Yeah. Because the thing in this bag's worth more than you're getting paid to write on the show.
2: Yeah. Wow, wow. Do you know what I mean?
1: And I was just like, literally, that was my focus. I wasn't even thinking about topical jokes. I was just going, <laughs> get to the BBC building safely, because if you lose this, then you may as well you know, you, you're going to lose twice as much as you get paid for writing on this. The most important bit is just not losing this laptop. But then you know, again, their thing is just bring your laptop. I've not got one, mate. I didn't have one at the time. I've got one now. Yeah. But again, it's because it's I bought it second hand. I think it's, you know that's what I mean? why
0: it's so important to have voices like yours out there because also part of what I really wanted and I'm good at it now, I'll go, we mm. talked about it. somebody asked me to pay a grand up front for some oh. accommodation for something, which I was going to get back, I mean, literally within days. Mm. But I was mm. like, I don't have a thousand pounds to pay mm. up front for no. mm. accommodation. And I just said that. And and the producer was a very nice person. And they were surprised, I think. And but immediately they were like, oh my gosh, of course, don't worry. We'll find a way to transfer mm. it to you. No problem. It just hadn't occurred to them that people weren't sitting on a grand to just throw into something that might come back to them in, in six weeks' time. And I feel like I try and say this podcast is a a, a slightly egotistical way of saying that out loud a lot because I really want young people to be able to go, I don't have a laptop. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't have £500 to to spend on all my travel and you pay me back in six months as per your... Like, I will need that up front. We can start to negotiate the things we need in order
2: to level the playing field a little bit. And also on the flip side as well, producers and stuff listen to this and, and go, like, we, we, we need to stop making people or thinking it's okay for people to work for free. You know, actors are so desperate just to get something on their CV that they will, I did it, will do stuff for free and take time off their job and, and, and not be able to pay their rent and get themselves into shitloads of fucking debt just to get something on their CV. And I hope people listen to that and go, yeah, we need to stop doing that. Stop asking people to work for fucking free. It pisses me off.
1: Well, that, that's, that's the thing, though, because like people aren't even doing it for free. They're paying to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. You're, pa- you're paying to yeah. travel
1: there. You're paying to get your headshots. You're paying to do open mic gigs. Do you know what yeah, I mean? You're yeah. Paying... When, when
2: I was gigging, like, there's no money in sketch comedy, really, when we were out there, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, we were paying. We were paying to gig.
1: I'm sure there still isn't money in sketch comedy unless no. you go to one of two universities. Um,
2: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Just going back to the Edinburgh thing, obviously, I know it's worked out well for you and it doesn't for some, you know. Like, do you think that we should stop placing so much importance on, particularly for comedians, that this is your only shot? If you don't go to Edinburgh, then no-one's going to know who the fuck you are. Like, do you think that needs to stop a bit?
1: Yeah. So much
2: importance is placed on that.
1: Massively. Well, I think, because so often, when you think of uh, comedians who... Become like club comics. They tend to be comedians from our background who can't afford to go to Edinburgh every year and reach the telly or have the opportunity of getting seen to possibly be on telly. So mm-hmm. they just not being, you know. I don't want to say just club comics because I think club comics is a fucking great job. Yeah. But but do you know what I mean? It feels like they have to go. It's all right. I've just got to earn money, so I'll just be a club comic. But then for them, it's like they don't have the opportunity to stretch their muscles doing an hour-long show that is maybe something that they care more about. They just have to go, no, I've got to pay the bills. I've got to earn 100 quid doing, a, you know, the stand or the comedy store, whatever it is at the weekend. I can't afford to risk this money doing my own show. And it means that often you're more likely to be a club comic if you're from a working-class environment, working-class background, and then you're more likely to be a telecomic if you're from a middle-class background. Yeah. because. That's the way it's all set up. And also, I've just thought of this, the whole... that, that The bit you said about how, how does it feel to be uh, more comfortable, but I always think, f- for me, I'm very, very aware that literally doing this job, it's like, I'm comfortable this month. Yeah,
2: yeah for now. You
1: know, it was heightened in the pandemic, but it's always been reality where like you're like, yeah, I'm comfortable now, but... But really, there's no guarantee that I might not earn enough money to get by over the next few months. And I know lots of people do say that. And sometimes people listening might be like, oh, yeah, but that's not the case. And I think maybe it's not the case if you're someone who's regularly on telly, but if you're like a, a working job in person on you know comedy or the live circuit or theater or stuff but like the reality is one month you can earn a grand the next month you earn 50 quid yeah that yeah. That, that can be the, the reality for you my like, tax return
2: tells the tale yeah <laughs> yeah it's Yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. it's totally, totally, that's, yeah. that's
2: why i mean i've harped on about it the listeners all have heard this tale over and over but you know i've only just been an actor and nothing else for like the last year and a couple of years because lockdown sort of forced that and then luckily I had um, a really good run with some telly jobs but you know the the day after I finished the first series of King Gary I went straight back to teaching and luckily I had a really good out of work job I I worked really hard you know and and did got that job at thanks to Hannah at 33 working in a drama school and I was able to dip in and out of that but it took me a while to take the leap because AI like working. I hate not getting up and not having a purpose. Um, I really I'm really struggling with that if I'm honest but I don't think it ever leaves you that thing of going, I could run out at any point. This money's not going to last forever. So you don't just sit on your ass. Like I'll give it so long. I've been out of work for a bit now, actually. And I'm starting to panic um, because I'm worried about next year and, and, and the the end of the year, like I'll be all right for a bit. I'm okay for a bit, but it's going to run out. You can't just fucking live off that. So I I don't think that, that fear ever leaves you when you've, you know, once been without, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, um, i'm I'm exactly the same at the moment. I'm like, right, I've got enough savings at a moment to last me until July, and it'll run out in July, but then is when I should get paid for Radio Four, so that'll be enough to see me through Edinburgh, and hopefully, if I make money in Edinburgh, I'll be all right till yeah. December. And then hopefully right. off the back of Edinburgh, I'll get another good gigs booked in. That will mean that I don't starve in January. But it's it's literally yeah. like you—that's
2: the mentality, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's there. It's all the time. It never stops. It still doesn't stop even when you're, you know, like you say, feeling a bit more comfortable. Do you know what the reverse of that is? And I hope I never lose this bit. I mean, I don't.
0: I can't envisage ever making any bloody money. But the <laughs> um, but I the joy I feel when I go into a supermarket and I know my bank balance is. In, not in the red. <laughs> I'm not trying to suggest for one minute that I'm living in food poverty or anything like that. No. Of course I'm not. But I'm talking about walking into a supermarket going, I can buy whatever, within reason, I'm not going to start buying sort of, you know, game consoles. And But I can just, without looking at it, I can just buy a weekly get- shop and go, oh, I'll get some nice couple of bottles of wine and uh, that still fills me with like massive joy yeah, yeah. yeah. having enough money in my oh bank my to just do a shop
2: yeah and it'll never leave that never leaves oh, that never leaves love I, it I, i'm exactly the same like you know i still feel so thrilled and i can go in M S. like i'm so i feel so lucky saying that that i can go in M S and get a oh, I know. a dinner Think, you oh know, that's like, a real yeah, treat that's <laughs> yeah that's, like, that's
1: Yeah, when are you going to invite us around for dinner? Uh, I like the sound of this. I mean,
2: I don't cook. It'll be like, um, you know, a meal for two kind of vibe. But if you're up for that tomorrow, I'll drop you some dates and we can make it happen. this is
1: luxury. Let's go. Let's do this. (laughs)
0: So, listen, it's been so amazing talking to you. you. could, like, carry on for hours, but I'm sure you have a life. The, no, um,
1: not really, no.
0: no. Oh, <laughs> great, then. Uh, how convenient. <laughs> this hour is supposed to be, you know, to celebrate you and, and the success that you, you are rightfully enjoying. But when we get to the end, we always like to ask our guests if there's someone they'd like to celebrate, like someone who they consider to be, like, a working-class person in their life who's an inspiration to them or a hero to them. Is there someone you'd like to... To nominate well
1: i was like thinking about this for a while because i kind of uh i already try and do that in, in in my stand-up really like one of my episodes of radio my first series was about my grandma another episode was about my dad and so i'm trying to think of who i've not spoken about and i think i'd i just have to nominate my mum. i love my mum. she's she's lovely she's my favorite person and she's um Oh, she's just great. She's just always upbeat. She's always happy. She's always trying to put, like, a nice warm smile and a nice happy side of things, which I think is fucking incredible. And, like, I know that me, I'm I'm 30. I still live with my parents at the moment. And I, I could move out, but I, I'd i rather save money because that's what we have. Yeah,
2: don't do it. Don't do well, it. Honestly, that's <laughs>
1: what we have to do in these industries. I'd rather save money. Yeah, you know,
2: right.
1: So at oh, the moment, no, don't do it. I live with my mum and dad. And... You know, there's been lots of times over the past uh, decade or so where, you know, Dan's been struggling with health stuff and I've been struggling with uh, either being on benefits or the insecurity of trying to be a comedian. And and, and Mum's always just been there as this wonderful, upbeat, lovely, happy person sort of holding us all together and always trying to be the person there who's making a cup of tea or a smile on her face and always just looking after us and... Being very silly and being very funny. Like, she's like she's one of the funniest people I know. And she, I don't think she even knows it. Like, one of my favourite things she did was she once came home from the doctors and she was really annoyed because the doctor said she was four foot twelve. And she was like, no, I'm definitely five foot. I'm definitely five foot. I'm not having that. I'm four foot twelve. And she was... She started stamping her foot, which made her look like a child, which didn't really help at all. Um.
2: <laughs> and what's, what's your mum's name? Uh, Gillian. So, we are celebrating, obviously, you, Tom, and your lovely mum, Gillian, today. Um, thank you so much. That's it's been right? such a. I wish we could have gone on and on. There's so many more things I want to ask you and talk to you about, but we can continue this. Yeah. Uh, listen, Tom, best of luck with everything. It's been thank so amazing so talking much. to you. Thank
1: you, guys. It's been lovely.
2: Cheers, mate. Thank you.
0: Oh, brilliant, isn't it? I Genuinely, you know, you have to say something nice at the end, don't you? But it's nice to me. I cannot wait to go and watch that show. I know it's going to be right up my alley. You know, that political kind of stand-up feels like something that was really prevalent in the 80s and that we've lost a little bit. I'm really excited
2: by his voice. Definitely lost. Uh, That's why I started following him a while back. I just had caught something on Twitter and I was like, oh, this guy's interesting, and just started following his journey a bit. So when the opportunity came up to have him on, I thought... Absolutely. I mean, he feels like I don't know, like a voice of the generation that we all bloody need, of that, of this generation that we need. Does that it's sound interesting, cheesy? But, no, not at know.
0: all. I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it?
2: Because there is no
0: doubt that he's enjoying a, a high level of success. And I'm sure, like you said, just scratching the surface of what he's going to achieve. But yeah. it's really important, I think, for people to hear how long the struggle continues for. Like, yeah. people see, like, oh, he won all these awards. He's had these huge rave reviews. He's got his second series on Radio 4 coming up. You know, you can see him on the Kelly and however, he's still living at his mum and dad's. I know. Hoping that one day he can buy their council house for them. Do you know what I mean? The struggle and how long it takes people, you know, even if he continues on the trajectories on, which I'm sure he will and more... It might be his 40s before he can really afford to relax and yeah, enjoy. It like a
2: household name, yeah. I've it's no a, doubt, I've no doubt he's going to do brilliant, brilliant things. You know, watch this space. I loved that. Absolutely loved it. And you can find out where he's gigging on his website, which is uh, uk. That's uk. I feel like I'm on the phone to the bank. That's Tom Mayhew. <laughs> .co.uk and you can get all his live gigs he's doing loads coming up and obviously with him going to Edinburgh I highly recommend watching his his show because not only is he brilliantly funny he's got he's got, <laughs> he's got a lot to say and it's important and you can also find his like the, the
0: first series of his Radio 4 show as well if you go on to like uh, BBC
2: iPlay I think it's still available there well, there we go that's it again for this week uh, join us next week for another brilliant guest keep it classy as always i'm off to venice tomorrow guys not bragging but i'm off on the so i mean that's literally the positive thing you've ever said <laughs> right ta-da oh no what do they say in italian ciao ciao is it ciao oh dude I'm, I'm looking at michelle she's our producer she's nodding yeah ciao bye mm. proper class podcast is produced by michelle far scott for Rangabee productions edited by james torrance with music by tommy music Just to let you know, folks, the Proper Class Podcast is now going weekly. And whilst I've got you here, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbours, whoever will listen. We've also got an Instagram page. Ooh, get us. And you can follow all the news and goss at the Proper Class Podcast. And if you haven't nodded off yet, we've also gone and got ourselves an official email. So do get in touch. The email is properclasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, keep it classy.